0: Guys, last week, um, we were kind of overwhelmed in in chapter 23, last week of the story, um, as we gathered. We were overwhelmed by the miracles of Jesus. This week, as we got into chapter 24, um, there were still some miracles, but it it was also just packed with the teachings of Jesus. And so this week, as we kind of enter our time of study, my prayer has been that we will be even more overwhelmed by the words of this one who has come to bring us back to God Um, than we were by the miracles that we witnessed last week. So join me in a word of prayer. We're going to get our hearts ready to receive God's word. Father, um, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather in this place. And and, and listen, God, we know church is a gathering. That's what it is. It's a gathering of people that they come together. And so it's just about the place or the location. We could gather out in the field. We, we could gather in a little apartment complex. You've blessed us with the ability to gather in this place. So we, we give you thanks for it. Um, but God, as we gather, what we want to do more than anything else is what we just saying. Um, we just want some more of you. Holy Spirit, we recognize it is your role to be the teacher of the church, and we want to invite you now to come and to take your proper place in this church. You are our teacher, you are our guide, and we know that you um, exist to truly do one thing, and that is exalt Jesus, so that he may draw all men to himself. And so Jesus, that is our prayer today, that as the Holy Spirit exalts you through your word, um, that you would draw us closer to yourself, that we would see you clearly, and that we would be changed by you to leave here looking more like you than when we walked in this morning. That is our hope. That is our prayer. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy, powerful, and precious name. Amen. Amen. Six. Say that again. Six. That is the number of economists, according to Cameron Cooper, who's a business journalist. That, six is the number of economists that got it right predicting the financial and banking crisis of, 20, uh, of 2008. Six. Of all the economists in the world, of all of the intellectual money-minded men and women, only six were able to forecast an impending financial collapse if the banking industry didn't change its ways. Of course it didn't, and the results were pretty tragic. This week in the story, we covered a wide variety of topics, didn't we? We had the parables, the parable of the soil, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We had the parable of the Good Samaritan. We got into the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus there teaches the Beatitudes, what salt and light is about, how to pray, our need to forgive, not to worry, seeking first the kingdom. We watched Jesus calm a storm. We saw him drive out several demons that were in one person into a herd of pigs, and they jumped off a cliff. We studied the healing of Jairus' daughter, the bleeding woman, two blind men. We had the death of John the Baptist, the feeding of 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and his declaration that he is the bread of life. But of, of all of those things, perhaps nothing stands out more than the warning that Jesus issues at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. If you've got your copy of the story, if you've got your Bible, I'm in Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. If you have your copy of the story, I'm on page 342, the bottom of the page. Jesus says, therefore. This is the conclusion of the best sermon that was ever preached, my friends. Sermon on the Mount, the best sermon ever preached. Uh, it's been around for years. We, we spent, by the way, I, I was joking before the sermon. I think we spent, we, we did the whole Sermon on the Mount here. I think we spent eight months on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to give it about eight minutes this morning. Best sermon that is ever preached. I want you to hear the concluding remarks of that sermon. Jesus says, therefore, because of what you've heard, because of what I've said, because of what you've seen in me, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It's quite a warning, isn't it? Jesus is saying, if you do not put these words of mine into practice, a collapse is coming, and it will be greater than any financial or banking collapse you could imagine. He says, your life and all of its work will lie in ruin if you don't actually do what I tell you to do. I want you to just think about the gravity of that for a second. That the words of Jesus aren't meant to be gathered around and studied... And talked about and listened to. But they're actually practical. They serve a purpose. Jesus didn't intend to increase your knowledge. He intended to change your actions. Just think about that for a second. Let the gravity of that sink in. That we don't gather here to gather more knowledge about what is good, about what is right. But we actually gather so that that knowledge will change what we do. And Jesus says if we don't take his words in a practical sense, in a practical nature, if we do not listen to what he says and actually apply it to our lives, that when all is said and all is done, that what we have worked for will lie and ruin. it'll Be all for naught. That means that the words of Jesus and the teachings that we find in the Gospels are extremely relevant. We don't have to seek out something relevant to talk about. Jesus is relevant because his words are meant to be put into practice always, always. So this morning, we're going to use this warning of Jesus about the need to practice what he says, to follow what he does, And kind of like last week with the words of John the Baptist, the great question, are you the one? We use that as a springboard into the text. This morning, we're going to use this warning of Jesus for a practical faith as a springboard into how we will interpret all that we studied. And so I've simply titled the sermon this morning, Practically Speaking. Practically Speaking, because that's what Jesus was doing. All right, four things I want to share with you quickly. Here's the first... Practically speaking, we should be desperate to find lost and unchurched people. It's the first principle I want to teach you this morning. Practically speaking, it's putting into practice, actually doing it, we should be desperate to find lost and unchurched people. We began last week by talking about how unexpected this Jesus was. Right? he He's come. This is the God who meets us in our mass. He hasn't come to those who believe themselves to be righteous, uh, but He has come to the broken. Right To to the masses. Uh, His social circle is not made up of a bunch of religious rulers. Rather, it's full of misfits and tax collectors, zealots, fishermen, people with difficult paths. And and why is Jesus surrounding himself with such a group of spectators? And you may remember the answer to that last week. It's in Mark 2.17. He's doing it because they're sick. On, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. He's talking to those religious rules. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, or those that think themselves healthy, but the sick. And I haven't come to call the righteous, a better translation would probably be the self-righteous, but the sinners, the people that know who they, they are. And, and, and this week we learn what he means by that. What does Jesus mean when he says, I've come to call the sick? What is, what, what is the definition of sick? Well, this week we learned that sick means lost. That's what it means. That that Jesus seeks out such people because they are lost. And and lost people evidently are of great value to God. In fact, this is the very reason why he's come. To bring lost people back to God. That is the mission of Jesus. If we think it's anything else, then we, we don't understand it. Therefore, lostness is very important to God. And so in Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables that reveal to us the heart of God for lost people. He tells them together on purpose so religious people won't miss the point. He begins by talking about lost sheep. And then he's going to talk about a lost coin and then the parable of the lost son. And they're told in this order so that at the very end we might see the mission of Jesus and how offensive it is when we become religious. Let me tell you what I mean. Okay? So it begins with the parable of the lost sheep, right? And there is a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and Jesus just tells it plainly, and he says, and and one of those sheep is lost. And he says, would he not leave the 99 behind and, and go find the one? And Jesus tells the parable like it's common sense, but can we just hit the pause button and say this makes no sense at all? Right. I mean, if we're completely honest, in our world today, leaving ninety-nine behind to go find one just doesn't make sense. I wrote down some notes this week. Right. In farming, we would just call that dead loss. Right. In in finance, uh, in, in finance, that's just an accounting error. We we would write that off. My, my my brother-in-law, I won't tell you which company he works for. He works for a massive uh, oil company. Massive. And is involved in all of kinds of international stuff. You would not imagine I mean it, it would you would you would go nuts thinking about how many millions of dollars these companies just write off as accounting errors every year. It's insane. See, in our world, it doesn't make sense. This is not something we... Jesus says it like it would just be something we would do. But it's not. We wouldn't leave 99 behind to go look for one. That would just be dead loss. It doesn't make sense to us. It almost seems careless. It almost seems reckless. In fact, uh, one of my favorite new worship songs right now is called Reckless Love. And... uh, it's describing this kind of love of God. And this is what it says about it. It says, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. Wow. It's crazy, isn't it? It seems reckless to us today to think of leaving behind 99 to go seek one. But that is exactly what God has done for each of us. This is the love of God. And the reason that we don't understand it is because uh, in church today, many of us are suffering from what I like to call the older brother syndrome. See, and this is why the parables are all told together, because at the end we come to the parable of the lost son. And the son goes to his father and asks for his inheritance. And he goes off and he squanders it in wild living. Eventually, he's staring at pigs and uh, the slop. And he, he's longing for the pods that they're eating. He wants to eat the pig slop. And he says, what am I doing? He comes to his senses. That's a, that's a work of God that, that causes him to come to his senses. He heads back home. This is like an act of repentance. And, and, and his father was always seeking him. He saw him when he was a long way off. Son runs to him, father runs to the son, They wrap their arms around him, he's fully restored. And the end of the story, there's a great feast and a great banquet. There's only one problem: the older brother's mad. The older brother's mad, right? And the parable of the lost son, when the prodigal son returns, the older brother is actually jealous, and he, he's like, "Dad!" Why why would you go to such great lengths? Why would you go to such a great extent to celebrate the return of the son of yours who has squandered all of the money that you gave him? And the father's answer is simple. We're doing this because your brother was lost. But now he is found. We're doing this because your brother was dead to us. But now he is alive. You see, the older brother represents the 99 that get left so that the one that is lost can be found. And it angers him. It it angers him. What about me? He cries. That's the cry of every person suffering from older brother syndrome, by the way. What about me? And and, and the church as a whole in, in, in America today is full of this syndrome. Well, what about me? Why don't we do more songs that I like? Why do all of our programs focus on the outside? Why does the pastor spend so much time getting to know new people? What about me? Folks. hate to tell you this. But if you're in the fold, it's not about you anymore. See, see the, the truth is that you are secure in your salvation. If you know Jesus and, 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 and He is your Lord, your eternity is secure. You are safe. You are in the fold. You're part of the tribe. But we have a very real enemy that is on the prowl. And he is looking for lives to devour We've got to be mission-minded. And so we, like Jesus, have to change our minds. Listen, I love Christian fellowship. Man, I do. A huge part of who I am today is because of time that I've spent with other Christian believers. And if you're not somebody that's involved in a small group of some sort, if, if Sunday morning is the only time you show up, you are missing out. Listen, we, we need some Christian fellowship in our lives. But... As much as I love discipleship, I need you to hear this. This is coming as somebody that's tasked with discipling people, by the way. As much as I love discipleship, I want you to hear these words of mine. If all I care about is growing while others are dying, then I have missed the point. Then I've missed the mission. And church, I fear for many Christians today that is... The summation of where they are. What about me? I want, I want, I want, and God is going. My love. I wouldn't, you wouldn't even be in the fold if God had not thought enough about lost people to leave the 99 and to go seek the one. Hmm. Practically speaking, we should be desperate to find lost and unchurched people, okay? Number two. Practically speaking, our priorities should be radically different than the world's. Sermon on the Mount, best sermon ever preached, is a slap in the face. Isn't it? It's a slap. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is a, is a shake you up, see what your mama gave you kind of sermon. I mean, it is, it is a what, what are you thinking, boy? What happened? The Sermon on the Mount, I, I mean, it proclaims things about the kingdom of God that fly in the face of the kingdom of man. They fly in the face of the kingdom of this world. In, in, in this kingdom of God, right? It, 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 it's the poor in, in spirit. Uh, the spiritually bankrupt is, is the way to say it that are blessed, right Th- Those are the people that the spiritually uh, bankrupt are the ones that are blessed. in, in, in this kingdom, it's the ones that, that, that hurt so bad over, over, over their sin that, that they can only be described as mourners. Those people are blessed. in the, in, in the kingdom of God, um, it, it's good to be hungry and thirsty. It's good right? I mean, the kingdom of man, that doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, we, we've got to live and work, and we've got to be fulfilled and satisfied. No, in the kingdom of God, you're supposed to be hungry and, and thirsty. In the kingdom of God, the law uh, is not eliminated. We, we like that. We like to say, man, the law is eliminated. I'm living under grace. In the kingdom of God, actually, the the, the, the bar is not lowered. It's actually raised. So now it's it's not about adultery. It's about Lust of the mind. Now it's not about murder. It's just about even being angry at people. In the kingdom of God, we don't seek retribution. What do you mean? Wait a second. Eye for an eye, right? No, not in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we actually open ourselves up for further injury by turning the other cheek, inviting hurt into our lives. We're called to be suffering servants like the suffering servant. That makes no sense to us. In the kingdom of God, we pray for our enemies. We pray for the people that persecute us. We pray. We don't post. We pray. We don't post on Facebook about how we can't stand other people's political views. We pray in our closets where nobody can hear us but God himself. In this kingdom, the things that we treasure can't be kept in banks or safety deposit boxes. In fact, they're not even material. In this kingdom, we don't worry about what we look like in the mirror, about what we're going to wear or what we're going to eat or how big our 401k is. Because in this kingdom, those things don't matter. They're actually very insignificant because God who oversees this whole kingdom, always makes sure that his children are better clothed than the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. He always makes sure that they're better fed than the beautiful animals we see around in nature. In fact, here we're told not even to worry about life at all. I'm I'm telling you, man, it is... (laughs) Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount again. Go read the whole thing. It's three chapters. It won't take you long. It it flies in the face of everything that we say is important today. And here's the problem. If our life is built upon any of the things that the world values, Jesus says the collapse will be great. It'll be great. I, I mean, it'll come down, what does he say? It comes down with a great crash, is his word. That's what happened in 2008, by the way. Some of the wealthiest people in the world that managed some of the biggest funds and worked for the biggest banks. When the crisis hit, they had built their lives upon the things of the world. Um, anytime you make something that is not the ultimate thing, God's the ultimate thing. Anytime you put anything in a place of the ultimate thing and that thing is stripped away from you, you are completely hopeless. And there were a whole lot, there was a string of suicides with these high executives and these companies. I mean, you couldn't believe it. People hanging themselves and shooting themselves and jumping off of buildings. That's what happens when we value the wrong things. But, if we prioritize the things of heaven, the hardships of earth cannot succeed against us. If we prioritize the things of heaven, the hardships of earth cannot succeed against us, for our foundation is sure and steadfast. Seek first the kingdom of God, And his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So, practically speaking, our priorities should be radically different than the world's. Number three, you guys aren't enjoying this practical sermon, are you? Number three, practically speaking, we should stop freaking out at every storm cloud of life. Talking about not worrying. Just walking through the stories with you, I'm on page 343 of the story, if you have your Bibles, uh, Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35, it says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith. You catch that little nugget in verse 38. I love this. Uh, I think I've got it up there. The disciples woke him. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? That's the attitude of, of every person when a storm cloud comes. Teacher, don't you care? Don't you care if I, I drown? I mean, that's our attitude, right? God, don't you care that I'm drowning in debt? God, don't you care that I'm, I'm drowning in depression? Don't you care that I'm, I'm drowning in this dead-end job, in this loveless marriage? God, don't you care about me? To which God replies, Chill. <laughs> Shh. Calm down. And be still. Stop acting like someone without faith. Because here's the truth, ready? With Jesus on board, we can't drown, even if the ship sinks. Can I just say that again? With Jesus on board, we can't drown, even if the ship sinks. I want to explain to you: Listen, our our eternity is secure. Even if the worst thing happens according to the world, even if we are to die, even if we have to file for bankruptcy, even if somebody walks out on us, our salvation is secure. Even if the worst thing the world can throw our way comes our way, we are safe. Jesus reminds his disciples exactly who is on the boat. It's a call to proper perspective in this thing called life. And this is what it teaches us, ready? As Christians, as people who have Jesus on the boat, we should be responding differently to the storm clouds of life. Okay? Tell you what I mean. Instead of acting like people without faith, when we see storm clouds on the horizon, maybe we should go to the Lord in prayer. And say, God, I see a storm's coming. How will you use this fresh outpouring to grow my faith? God, how will you use this storm to grow my faith? How will you use this to to help me persevere, to make me stronger, to get me on my knees and talking to you again. God, how will you use this trial to make me more like you? Well, that's a radically different mindset, isn't it? It's a radically different mindset. That should be our response to storm clouds. Point number four practically speaking, we should be serving and feeding others if we're spending time with Jesus. Practically speaking, we should be serving and feeding others if we're spending time with Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000, one of my favorite miracles. It's probably actually my favorite. Uh, if, if I'm just being honest, I, I, it, I think it's my favorite miracle. It doesn't have to be yours. That's fine. And uh, we've talked about it here before. Jesus has the groups sit down in, in, in groups of 50, right? And uh, there were 5,000 men there that day. That doesn't include a count of women and children, so we could easily say there were probably 10,000 people there that day, and Jesus is going to feed them with five loaves and two fish. So he asked the crowds to get into groups of 50. Now, there's 12 disciples. If we've got 10,000 people in groups of 50, uh, each disciple is responsible for about 17 groups of people people. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know if you waited tables, I did. I could tell you, you can't, I, I, I couldn't carry that much food at one time. Now, I'm assuming they have baskets, even with baskets. I think at best, they could probably take enough food out to the masses, maybe to feed 25 people at a time. So if you can imagine that, 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 just work that out. That's 34 trips back and forth that they have to come to Jesus and fill up with food and go to the people and empty themselves out. And go to Jesus and fill up with food and go to the people and empty themselves out. And go to Jesus, fill up with food and go to the people and empty themselves out and go to Jesus with food and fill up and then go to the people and empty themselves out. And and Jesus didn't have to do this. He didn't have to make the disciples serve. He could have been the old Baptist buffet line where people went down both sides of the table. Jesus could have done that. But Jesus didn't do that because this is meant to be a model for the rest of the ministry for these men. From now on, from this point on, for, for forever, as they go to be the mouthpieces of Jesus, they will have to do this very thing. They will have to go to Jesus and fill up, and they will have to go to the people and, and, and speak, and they will have to go to Jesus and fill up, and then they'll have to go to the crowds, and they'll have to speak, and they'll have to go to Jesus and fill up, and then they'll have to go to the crowds, and they will have to speak the truth of God. And, and, and that model is the same model that you and I have. This is Jesus' actual model for ministry. It's called discipleship, to go and make disciples. says to teach them everything that you know. It means that everything that you ate, you're going to go and now share. Everything that you, you took in, you're going to go and you're going to pour out. And the problem for that, see, that's, that's what church is supposed to look like. Unfortunately, we think that church is golden corral instead of Meals on Wheels. Right? And I get it with kids. I mean, kids love Golden Corral. There's a chocolate fountain that just keeps pouring. But, but today in the church, what plagues us is adults feel this way. You would not believe how many adults want more Bible studies and more topics and more things. I mean, I mean the adults, these are mature believers in Christ. And they just want to consume more. They just want the spiritual buffet. Yet, they're not going out sharing what they consume. And we wonder why the church is broken and the church isn't growing. The church isn't growing because we're just getting spiritually fat. Riding around in our little chairs. Full up on Jesus, not sharing anything. And it sours inside. How, how could the sweetness of Jesus sour? You go read political commentaries, Christians on the internet these days. I'll tell you the problem is they're not serving. That's what will happen. When we think of church as golden corral instead of Meals on Wheels, we miss the whole ministry of Jesus and what discipleship is all about. When they're done, 12 basketfuls of leftovers, when we eat with Jesus, there's always leftovers, right? (sighs) Basic role of the believer. You may want to write it down. My basic role. As a believer in Jesus, share what I eat with Jesus with other people. Period. That is the basic role. That's the basic role. So if you're involved in discipleship, that is great. You you know enough. Jesus actually looked at his his disciples and said, I want you to go out. First time they went out, he says, Hey, don't take anything extra with you. The first time! I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip where, mission trip where you had to like get out of your comfort zone. I remember the first mission trip, somebody said, Okay, you're going to go share Christ with people. I was in Mexico. Like, problem? No habla española. Don't take anything else with you. What? <laughs> Hola, ¿cómo estás? Me llamo Jason. ¿Dónde está el baño? That's all I got, right? Jesús, <laughs> Cristo. have got to get out of this mentality that this place is meant for fattening up. It's not. This place is not a buffet. This place is a place that we come and we load up to go take out and serve the starving people in our world. And if we don't get it, we're done. Just pack it up. Shut the doors. I mean, we've got to get church right, friends. We've got to get church right. How do we take all this stuff home? Uh, I've got a few things for you. Here's the first. Don't be offended. Ready? I want you to get lost. Uh, <laughs> okay? I don't mean that you've got to go, but I do, in a sense, mean you, you do got to go. Uh, and you've got to go. And as you go, you've you got to get involved in some lost people's lives. You just have to. See, I don't know any lost people, Pastor. That's a problem right there. Ding, ding, ding. Go join a bingo club or something. I mean, I don't know. Go, go figure it out. They're everywhere. Just get out of your house. Go get in the lives of some lost people. Here, here, and here, here's the deal. Now, Again, this is all practical. We're all supposed to be doing this. The problem is you're not going to do it. It's just going to be another sermon on Sunday. If you don't start by praying, say, God, would you give me your heart for lost people? So if I were giving you steps on how to get lost, I would start here. God, would you give me your heart for lost people? It will radically change how you see people. How many of you be honest, because we only audio record here, we don't, there's no video recording, so people can't see your hands. Uh, how many of you, if you're out in the world and somebody drops an F-bomb, you're highly offended? Anybody, you, you react, <gasps> Why? Why? Are you highly, I, I, don't, I don't love the word either, but if I'm highly offended, that shows that I've probably been living in a little sheltered circle, not sharing my faith with anybody. Right? See, if I'm going to get in the lives of lost people, that doesn't mean that my language is going to change, but it means that I can be with them without them seeing my face go, Gosh, gosh, Man, I've been there, trust me. I'm not telling you to go watch HBO so you'll get comfortable with it. That's not what I mean. It's not for you, okay? But you have to be for them. You have to be for them. You can't be so offended at their political views or at their language or what they do that you don't see their great need is for Jesus. And if Jesus were here amongst us, he probably wouldn't just be sitting in the pew or hanging out with Christian friends. He would probably be in places that we'd be very uncomfortable with. And so we we need to pray, God, would you give me a heart for lost people? Uh, The second thing I tend to pray when I find that I have wandered from this truth in my life is not only give me a heart for lost people, God, would you show me people in my life that don't know you. And I write their names down. Write their names. I actually have a list in a journal. Okay, this person, and that person, and that person. And then I make it my point to not just pray for the people. Okay, hear me, Christian, I love you. Oh, I prayed for them. Yeah, but did you talk to them? Jesus actually went and hung out with the lost person, right? So you do life with them. Invite them to dinner, whatever. It may be awkward at first. It may be weird to have somebody in your home that doesn't have the same values as you. That's okay. Love them anyway. Would you let them see the love of God, that there's a God that is searching for people just like them? This is the heart of the gospel. How different do you think church culture in America would be if we did this one thing as Christians? Anybody? You can shout it out. Anybody think pews would be fuel- full? Right? Anybody think the nation might be a little bit different? Okay. So wait, wait, wait. You're meaning to tell me that we don't need to fix this at the polls. It's got to start right here in our hearts. Yeah. I agree. I agree. We need to get lost. Okay. That's number one. Number two. I think many of us this morning need to repent and reprioritize. We study the Sermon on the Mount we see how different the kingdom of God is than the kingdom that we live in, that we've accepted. Just wonder, what are we living for, right? Um, hard reality I've been dealing with over the last year and a half with my dad's death is what my father lived for. And the result of that, and, and you know, the sad end game of it all is that everything that he lived for, everything that he wanted to do has been nullified, that's a harsh reality to accept. It's a harsh reality, to accept. it hurts. I wonder, will that be the testimony of your life? Everything that you lived for, and by lived for, I'm not talking about godly priorities. Those are thoughts that we don't put into practice, by the way. <laughs> those are, those are I- idyllic aims that we say, oh yeah, I, I'm about that, but we're not actually about that, because our lives don't reflect that. I'm talking about at the end of the day, what we worry about, what we spend our time investing, what we're working towards, right? What we put our energy and effort into. At the end of the day, are we putting those things into the things that our world values? Into money, wealth, health, and fame? Or are we putting all of that time into what God values? Lost people, eternity, investing in His kingdom, right? We've got to figure that out. It's a balance. And hear me, I'm not telling you it's not okay to make money. It's okay to make money. Just use that money for the kingdom. Right? By the way, the early church, there were people that made money. They made made money and they gave it to the church. And that's how the church expanded. So, like, I'm not getting on to you for that. I'm just saying, know why you're making the money. Right? I mean, don't be making, oh, I'm just making the money so I can give it to my kids so we can build up and we're going to be the next Rockefellers. Right? Rockefeller was miserable. Don't be that. And don't be, don't, don't, don't be miserable, right? So, so if you're doing some of the, the things for the wrong motives, for the wrong reasons, just repent, reprioritize. Oh, God, this is why I was, I'm so sorry. I don't know about you, I, I get caught up in it. I mean, I, I start off with good intentions. Lord, I'm going to do this, and it's going to be good, and it's going to be for your kingdom. And then something happens, and next, I'm still doing that thing, but it's making me look good instead of him. Who? Sorry, Lord. I repent. Help me get that right, okay? Three. We're packing this up. Uh, (laughs) I love you. (laughs) Don't be mad, okay? (laughs) Just chill out. (laughs) Just chill out. Um, I long for the day when Christians react differently than the rest of the world when trouble comes. I just think it would be a lasting testimony, all right? A problem arises, and our response is not, oh my gosh, We look like everybody else, but we see instead the storm clouds off in the distance, and we say, "Lord, I wonder how You are going to use this season to grow me." Heard a story of a woman who was diagnosed with cancer. Godly Christian woman, and in the diagnosis, when the doctor told her, you know what her response was? First words out of her mouth: "Ready? Thank you, Jesus." First words, dear Lord, get me to that point in life, amen? Like, get me to that point in life. First words, thing, and, and because she had this mindset, I wonder what you're going to teach me through this, Lord. I wonder how you, you, have, you have done so many things for me in life. Everything that I thought was tragedy, you've turned into triumph somehow in me. You have grown me. You have stretched me. You have made me so much more than I could ever have been on my own. I wonder how you will do it with this now. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Lastly, uh, again in love, tell you. Our goal should be to share as much Jesus as we consume. That's what church is supposed to be about. That's the Christian life, right? (laughs) I'm going to come and I'm going to fill up. And I'm going to go and I'm going to feed others. I'm going to come and I'm going to fill up. I'm going to go and I'm going to feed others. How many of you have been in church? It doesn't have to be this one. And you've heard the announcements where they beg for Sunday school teachers children's church workers, VBS volunteers, or small group leaders who's been in that church? We've done it around here, so if you go to this church, you know we've done it. Wow. What a shame, huh? What a shame. We actually have a platform to do this. We actually have in place ways for you To do the basic premise of Christianity, of being a disciple, we've—it's like the, the rails are there; they're there. It's not Golden Corral, folks. It's always meant to be Meals on Wheels, always. There's two kinds of people in the world. No, you hear those things all the time, but it's true. There are the people that are going to hear the words of Jesus. They're going to look at the life of Jesus, by the way, which was an example to us. And they're going to see something different. And they're going to say, wow, that was really good. And man, he was really awesome. I think he was probably the best teacher there ever was. But they're never going to put those things truly into practice in their life. And the Bible says in the end, all of their life's work will just be a great collapse and ruin. The other group of people, they're going to see them. They're going to understand that they're really hard and really tough. But by golly, with everything that they have, with every ounce, every fiber in their being, they're going to do their very best to put those words into practice. And God said, they will be blessed. They will be blessed. Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your words and their intent in our lives which is simply to be put into practice. My prayer right now, just in this tender, sovereign moment, is that just for one moment, we would be able to do that. Please. So where you are with your head bowed for just one moment, would you just pray this simple prayer to God, God, how are you speaking to me right now, practically? It's been four areas we talked about. Maybe it's the overarching area. You're really not practicing much of it. But maybe it's one of those specific areas. God, how are you speaking to me? What do I need to put into practice today? Just let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart just for a second.